This week, the comics guys explain the history of Marvel, part one. Explain this. Thank you, Ben. And like you said, today we'll be talking about the history of Marvel Comics. Probably at this point, the biggest media franchise in the world. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't start off as Marvel, though. No. Marvel comes about much later in the story. We should get to Marvel by the end of episode two, I think. Okay. Well, that's good. But we've got a whole bunch of stuff we got to cover before that. Yeah. I want to make a special shout out at the beginning of this episode to a couple of people whose research has been tremendously invaluable to us putting these together. We wanted to thank Jess Nevins, a dear friend of ours, who was the original writer of the Timely Comic Story when it existed online for many years, starting back in 2008, and is also the author of the Guide to Golden Age Superheroes, which came out in 2016. And then to a guy named Sean Howe, who wrote Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, which is an excellent book for uh, researching this sort of thing. And that came out in 2012. And you should totally read it if you care about this sort of thing. Yeah. If after the next two hours, you're still, uh, you know, down for more of this, the project goes out. Right. Exactly. So who who does who does the timely story start with? Timely story begins with a guy named Martin Goodman, and uh, Martin Goodman was born in 1908. He changed his name to Martin as an adult. He was actually Mo as a kid, and he was the oldest of a family of 17 kids that were born in uh, Brooklyn. They were his parents were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania. And they were pretty poor, and young Mo Goodman at the time uh, moved out. Basically, he dropped out of school in the fifth grade to work and kind of, you know, took off on the road as, as, a, as a kid. By the time he was 15 or so, he was traveling across the country by train, doing odd jobs, picking fruit in various uh, locations. He was living in hobo camps during the Depression. And so, you know, he had he had a kind of a, a knockabout life as a kid. He was pretty poor and he kind of like picked up, he became mostly by practice, a pretty good salesman because he was a good talker, right? Like he could, uh, you know, he could get out of trouble by talking people out of things, you know, that he had gotten himself into uh, and discovered that he was pretty good at, uh, at, at selling and it didn't matter what it was he was selling, right? Like he could sell pretty much anything. And he made it back to New York by 1929 or so. At that point, he's about 21 years old, and he's already been living on the road by himself for five or six years at least. And he gets a job at a company called Eastern Distributing. And Eastern Distributing was a magazine distribution company that basically was a, was a wholesaler for pulp magazines uh, and also for you know like higher class magazines they also did you know life and that kind of thing but the main business that they had was selling pulp magazines to retailers and newsstands and that sort of thing and he became a salesperson for them he would actually go out and talk to you know like the big uh, businesses the big companies for for sales and he worked there he was hired by a guy named Louis Silberkleit and Louis Silberkleit We'll also, we'll, we'll get a whole episode to himself, basically, or to his story later on, because he's the L in MLJ that would go on to become Archie Comics. So the two of them kind of like were both working at this pulp distribution company when the concept of the comic book was invented, right? Like they were there at the beginning. Uh, and the two of them definitely kind of like saw the value of what you could do with comics, that there was a way to make money this way. And they both went on to become professionals and they each went on to run, you know, basically two of the most important comic book companies in history. So 
Eastern, unfortunately, like, you know, uh, uh, Martin's working there. He's changed his name to Martin and he works there for a few years and uh, gets promoted. He's such a good salesman that he eventually gets promotion to being the circulation manager. So he's got a you know pretty nice office job for the first time in his life. He's in his you know mid twenties. But Eastern really takes a beating during the depression. Sales are just down across the board, and Eastern winds up going bankrupt in 1932. So Martin and Lewis and several other people who were working for who were working for Eastern say, you know, we understand why Eastern went out of business. It wouldn't have happened if we were in charge. We think our bosses were kind of dumb. So we're going to go start our own company and not have the same mistakes that Eastern had. So they begin a company that's also a magazine distributor, basically. It's called Mutual Magazine Distribution. And then there's a sub company for it called Newsstand Publications Incorporated. And so Mutual Magazine Distribution uh, is, a, is a wholesaler, is a distributor. And then Newsstand Publications Incorporated, they also go into the pulp magazine publishing business, right? Like that's the publishing side of the business. And they've got an office at 53 Park Place, you know, downtown New York City, and they, they, you know, start up and, you know, they've got all the contacts they need and they contact a bunch of, uh, you know, people who are putting magazines together. And pretty soon they've got a pretty solid thriving business. And Martin, as you know, kind of like the was, was both like a sales guy. He was also the editor, right? Like he, you know, would like make decisions about the stuff that came in. He wasn't a terribly creative writer, but he was competent. And he could make a mag, he could put a magazine together, right? And he could, you know, he knew how to hire people. He knew how to talk to people. But he had a pretty good job there. And he, for whatever reason, he got very good at putting together like a very complicated business plan, right? He would own multiple, he started new companies all the time. And most of them did the same kind of things. And that kind of allowed him because at any given time, he was running six or eight different companies out of you know his office that all had the same business address and that kind of thing. He got very good at moving money around between them. And so let's just say he, you know, he, he didn't, he never paid a dime of taxes that wasn't forced out of him, right? Because he was always really good at kind of like shuffling money around between his different companies and all of his companies were just him, right? right? Or him and a few other people, him and his friends kind of thing. But it was very hard to kind of like track back exactly which company was responsible for what, which company owned what. That was just kind of, he had this just really Byzantine accounting system basically to keep track of all this. And he was very good at it. Mm -hmm. And he made a bunch of money and he kept a bunch of money that he probably should have paid elsewhere, you know? <laughs> so he's doing all right for himself. It gets to be 1937. You know, the country is slowly coming out of the depression. He's making, he's making a decent amount of money. He gets married in 1937, lovely young woman named Jean Davis. And they go to Europe for a two week honeymoon. They try, just kind of like travel around Europe. And there's when they're coming home, they have tickets literally on the Hindenburg, hmm. right? It's wow. the, on its last voyage, right? Like they were supposed to be on the Hindenburg, but their ticket situation got screwed up so that their seats weren't together. So they canceled their tickets and decided to come home on a later plane instead. So they were not, in fact, on the Hindenburg when it blew up, basically, right? But they had tickets to be there. Lucky them. Lucky them, and also kind of gives you an idea of like the kind of circles he was moving in, right? Like, right. A, you know, Hindenburg tickets were were expensive, yeah, right. Like, only you know, this was on the, this was a pretty he was a pretty upper class guy by this point, which is pretty impressive when you consider you know how poor he started not that long before, mm -hmm. you know, in the course of 
eight or 10 years, he'd put together a nice kind of like business. So he is, you know, the, the through newsstand publications, Mutual Magazine distribution is what's the big money maker, but newsstand publications is the one actually producing magazines. And because he owned both a publisher and a distributor, you know, he didn't have, he could kind of like sell directly to himself, right? Like, uh, you know, he used his own distribution company to get his own magazines out onto the shelves and they kind of, you know, fed into each other pretty well. Right. And so he's doing a bunch of pulps that were, you know, mostly kind of action-y pulps. You know, he would do Westerns, complete Western, star detective, uncanny stories, mm -hmm. mystery tales. And he was the publisher of Kazar. And Kazar was uh, started as a pulp character, even though he would go on to be a comic book character. And was basically, a, at this point, a straight-up ripoff of Tarzan. There, you know, there are no dinosaurs, no savage lands or anything yet at this point. He is just in the jungle to being like Tarzan because Martin Goodman did not believe, you know, in not ripping off anything that was making money. You know, if there was a, if there was a version of something out there, he would swipe it multiple times and try to squeeze as much money out of the ripoffs as he possibly could. The first time he uses the name Marvel, which you know he will go on to use a lot, uh, is for Marvel Science Stories, which was a science fiction pulp magazine that came out in 1939. So over the next decade or so, he's got over 100 different titles that he is publishing as a pulp publisher. Mm -hmm. And he's doing great. He's doing you know, he, he's, he's doing all right. And, you know, if he had gone on this way and not, you know, gone into a new business, you probably never would have heard of him. But these pulp magazines, you know, were, were, were well thought of or, you know, decently thought of at the time. Mm -hmm. So now we've got another company that I want to talk about quick. And that company is called Funnies Inc. And Funnies Inc. basically was made up of, uh, in 1937, 1938. One of the very first comic book publishing companies was a company called Centaur Publishing. And Centaur Publishing did, you know, a whole range of different stuff. They did, uh, when Superman started in 38, they were one of the first companies to kind of like jump on the bandwagon of being a superhero publisher, right? Like just a few months after Superman came out, they had their own superhero characters. They had science fiction characters. They had Western characters. They had a bunch of things for it. And so Funnies Inc. was formed by a bunch of people who had left, like a, a guy named Lloyd uh, Jacket. I left Centaur and took a bunch of the Centaur people, both the artists and writers making the comics and like the, the business staff with him to start a company called Funnies Inc. And Funnies Inc. wanted to be a publisher, but they didn't really have the financial setup to do that yet. So the first line of business they went into was being a packager. And packagers in the 30s was kind of a business model that doesn't exist anymore. But basically, they would hire freelance artists and writers to create characters to create stories to create series and then the publishers would come to the packager and like basically kind of like go through everything that they had and pick and choose what they wanted right and so the 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 packager was kind of a middleman between freelancers all over the countries all over the country and like the major comic book publishers pretty much all of which were based in New York City hmm. So Funny Zinc was based in New York City, and they had a bunch of different freelancers that they, you know, started collecting stuff from. And then they would kind of like put them together, make a comic book out of it, and then sell that, have that comic be published by another publisher. Right. And so since they were starting with a bunch of the Centaur kind of, you know, people who had bailed on Centaur because Centaur famously didn't pay very well, uh, you know, they would turn around. Are they one of the ones that got sued out of existence by DC uh, for ripping off Superman or are they 
they never had they never had that close a thing oh, not okay. like Fox or or Fawcett. Right. They never they didn't rip off Superman that close. Oh, okay. Um, so they didn't have anybody. They were they were very quick on the bandwagon, but they also were like smart enough not to be as close to Superman as say Fox was with Wonder Man, gotcha. right? You know, they did other other kinds of superheroes, so they were safe there. But Centaur also didn't pay very well, so their freelancers, you know, would frequently kind of work for them for a while and then bail when they got a better offer. Right. So there's basically three uh, packagers in New York City at the time kind of competing with each other to sell to publishers. Harry Chesler uh, was kind of like the first one, kind of like invented the business. And then um, Eisner Iger was the second one. And Eisner Iger was actually made up, Will Eisner, who you know would go on to create the spirit and everything and have the Eisner Awards named after him, was one of the guys. He would do most of the writing, and then they would get freelance artists for Eisner Iger. Okay. Iger was the businessman, and his... Uh, grandson would be the Iger with, with the Iger family for Disney, right? Like that's where they came from. That was their 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 start in animation came from working in comic books, uh, you know, in the 30s. Hmm. So you've got Funny Zinc and Chesler and Eisner Iger. They're like the only three packagers. And really, in 1939, at that point, there's not that many comic book publishers to sell to, right? So these three packagers are fighting over the four big comic book publishers and then there's a bunch of little ones right but there's four that you could really make money working with and the four you could really make money working with were national superman and batman right right all american which is like you know the flash and hawkman and green lantern and everybody else that like those would eventually combine into being dc right centaur which they had all come from right with their various characters and then fox which their most notable characters basically were like the blue beetle right the original Golden Age Blue Beetle. Those four publishers, the three packagers would fight over, right? It was kind of like a, you know, that was the competition between them. And then there were like, you know, a dozen little ones that like would come and go. And most of them you didn't make much money off of. So you were really kind of like fighting for the attention of these four publishers. So one of the guys who came from Centaur to Funny Zinc was a guy named Frank Torpy. And Frank Torpy was the salesman. It was his job. He was the sales guy for Funny Zinc because he'd been the sales guy for Centaur. And so part of his job was go out and find us new publishers, right? Because we're all fight. All three of us are fighting over these four. You know, I, I don't need a salesman, you know, directly for that, right? Like I need you to go find other places that we could sell comic books to, that we could sell, you know, these characters to. Right. And so Frank Torpy went to a bunch of pulp publishers, a bunch of pulp magazine publishers, and basically tried to talk them into going into the comic book business because there wasn't that much difference between them, right? Like if you could put out a pulp magazine, you could put out a comic book magazine. They were, the, the business model was very close. So his idea is to say, well, there's all these pulp publishers out there for it. We should talk them into being comic book people and then we'll sell them comic books, right? Like, but we had to, they had to kind of like invest their own like time and energy into turning some of these pulp publishers into comic book publishers. So Frank Torpy goes to Martin Goodman because, you know, Martin Goodman's making money making selling pulps and says, you know, newsstand publications, uh, Mutual Magazine, all this stuff should be in the comic business. Look how much money National is making. Look how much money All American is making. You know, you, you could have a piece of that. Right. Like let's you should you should start doing comics. Martin Goodman didn't care about comics. You know, that was not a thing that he was he was interested in, but he did like making money. 
So when Frank Torpy says, we'll put together uh, like all of these comics for you out of the freelancers that we work with, Martin Goodman was like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. Why, not, why don't we do that? So Goodman goes to uh, Lloyd Jacket and the rest of the people at, at Funny Zinc and basically starts, you know, like the, the, the biggest Funny Zinc, you know, uh, freelancers, the strips and everything were, had already been picked over, right? Like the big four had already taken the ones that they wanted mm-hmm. off of that. So when uh, Martin Goodman shows up, he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the second and third best things out of, uh, out of everybody's stuff here. But he goes through and he, you know, kind of likes some of them. And now at this point, Funny Zinc has a bunch of freelancers working for them. One is a guy named Bill Everett. And Bill Everett had created a character for another company, for one of the small companies, which was called Motion Pictures, Motion Picture Funnies. Mm-hmm. And Motion Picture Funnies had bought a character from Everett through Funny Zinc that was called uh, Namor the Submariner. And they, they bought this character and then never got their comic out, right? Like they, they collapsed as a company before they could actually publish it. So the rights to Namor had returned back to Bill Everett and Funny Zinc. So it had never, you know, he'd already written all of this stuff for it, written and drawn all of this stuff. And then he didn't have uh, an, any place to actually sell it. So uh, Namor, the Submariner, was basically, you know, available to anybody who came along. And Martin Goodman said, oh, we'll, we'll take that one. And then we're going to take this one over here by a guy named Vince Berg, uh, uh, Carl Burgess. And it's a character called the Human Torch. Mm-hmm. And the Human Torch, of course, is not the Human Torch that we know, you know, from the Fantastic Four and everything. This is the Golden Age Human Torch. He is an android who is built by a scientist. And when he tries to turn the android on, his skin, the chemicals in his skin, like interact with the air and basically catch fire. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes this living man of fire. And the scientist says, well, I didn't want for that to happen. That's terrible. You'll burn down my lab. Uh, so he turns him back off, seals him in, you know, like a, like a plastic tube, basically, and buries him underground. And he has an uh, awesome, uh, he's in a, he has a, a Easter egg in um, Captain America, First Avenger. In First Avenger, yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, so he escapes. The android, you know, turns himself back on and escapes and learns to control his skin, you know, catching fire thing, basically, um, and becomes a superhero. Right. Uh, but that's, just, you know, just that, like, famous first story. So that's Carl Burgess. And then Goodman, you know, goes through and he picks a couple of other characters, too. He takes a, a, a saint ripoff called The Angel by Paul Gustafson, um, who is basically the same as the, you know, as, as the Charteris pulp character the saint where he's like this rich guy uh who leaves business cards for people and goes around and solves mysteries and you know disguises. it it's just in this case he's wearing a cape and a mask when he does it and then the masked raider who was basically a cowboy superhero he was like a you know masked vigilante cowboy who fought crime in the wild west and then the last piece that they bought uh they hired one of the funnies inc freelancers instead of buying an existing thing they said okay ben thompson we want to hire you to turn a pulp character that we already own, in this case, Kazar, into a comic book character. So just take some of the pulp stories that we've written and just draw them, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> just reuse the plots. That's fine. We don't care. That's, you know, we don't expect that these are the same audience or whatever. And so just draw our pulp stories and turn him into a comic book character. So you've got, he's got five characters right that he now is renting basically he's he's licensing from funny zinc and he takes a couple other little bits and bobs and you know one page features and whatever and they make a comic book out of it and it's called 
Marvel Comics. That, that comic title is called Marvel Comics. Issue number one of Marvel Comics hits the stands in the fall of 1939, like late August. It's dated for October. And it uh, sells 80,000 copies of the first issue, the first print run. Is that good for... Um, that's, that's, that's quite good for somebody just starting, yeah. right? Like, I mean, at this point, Action is selling a million copies. So 80,000, okay, that's lovely. Good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's not amazing. Um, but 80,000 copies in a month, that's, you know, hey, for your first time, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's certainly more than they were selling any individual issue of their pulps for. Uh, so they do a second print run. And that one's dated. It's literally the same issue. It's just dated November instead of October. <laughs> that one sells uh, 800,000 copies. That's a smash, right? Yeah. Like That's one of the top 10 titles on the stands at that point. It's, yeah, once again, it's still a little behind Superman and Captain Marvel, but not much. You know what caused um, what caused the the explosion between the first two? Just word of mouth, or I, both the I mean, you know, the the other titles in it aren't really that notable. But Bill Everett, Submariner, and Carl Burgess's Human Torch—they're both really good, okay. right? They're great right. visual characters. They're very well written. Bill Everett's art is unlike anybody else's on the stands. They're very simple, interesting characters. Submariner, remember, is like he's an anti-hero, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. like his, you know, he's 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 a, basically a bad guy in the first story, right? Um, who's you know, like what's the I'm declaring war on the surface world here as you know, Prince of Atlantis. Uh, you know, I'm going to go out and mess up the humans on the surface. You know, he's a he's, and then you've got the whole kind of like. Uh, dichotomy between them right we've got a character based on water and a character based on fire and we put them on the cover right Right. you know it's just the whole thing just worked you know like the the i mean the like i said the other three titles nobody really remembers them that well they've all kind of reappeared in history from marvel kazar kind of went on to be an important character and angel came back in the 80s and a bunch of other stuff but it's it's those two you know right. that are that are kind of like a big hit basically so that's a that that's a smash right so okay now apparently we're in the comic book business says says goodman um the second issue he changes the title because he can't leave a title alone right like marvel comics isn't cool enough as a name he changes it in the second title to marvel mystery comics and as marvel mystery comics that comic would run for 92 issues which is a long time in the comic book business right that's this is a 10 year long uh, run that that will go on as one of the best-selling comics Alex Schomburg, starting with issue two, starts doing the covers. He's a great artist. His covers are amazing. And, you know, the Human Torch and Submariner become really popular characters. So, hey, now we're in the comic business. So uh, Martin Goodman realizes, okay, I am having to pay Funny Zinc to then turn around and pay the freelancers to make these comics, right? Right. That's not the smart way to do it. I, I'm going to cut out the middleman. I can offer less money to the individual freelancers themselves and still, you know, less than I'm paying and still have it be more than their share of the money coming to Funny Zinc is if I cut out the middleman. Right. Right. So he starts recruiting all of Funny Zinc's freelancers to come work for him directly. And that way they'll make more, you know, than they're making working for Funny Zinc. He can't get out of the deal that he's in with Human Torch and Submariner, right? Like, because he bought them from Funny Zinc. But anything new that's going to come out, he basically goes around Funny Zinc and goes straight to the freelancers. And one of the very first freelancers he hires in 1940 is Joe Simon. And when Joe Simon comes on board as a staffer for him, Simon brings his buddies, Jack Kirby and Sid Shores. Right. 
So all three of those, you know, some of the, the most famous legendary, you know, like comic book creators just basically come on board and Goodman is paying them $7 a page total, right? It's, you know, to have the pages done, you know, straight up, all the writing, all the art, all the lettering, you guys divide that among yourselves. I'm paying $7 a page to have this stuff uh, put out. And at that time, that's, you know, what, $90 a page in modern day money? That's still nothing, right? So... You can hear more about Kirby and Simon in our Jack Kirby episode. In our Jack Kirby episode, exactly. Which is not, I believe, up yet, but I think uh, sure. yeah, maybe by the time this one comes up. If not, they'll be pretty close to each other. Yeah, it'll be up soon. So, yeah. So, now he's in the business, right? He starts uh, putting out more comics alongside Marvel Mystery. And at different times, he is calling this company a bunch of different things, right? Because once again, he owns like 100 companies at this point, and he's kind of shifting money back and forth between them and ownership of things, depending on you know what it is he's trying to do. Right. So uh, the comic publisher version, the comic publisher subgroup within, uh, within Mutual Magazine gets called a bunch of different things. It's called the Goodman Group. It's called Red Circle Comics. And the most commonly used one at the time is called Timely Publications. And that's kind of what become this, this era of, of comics. Timely is the most commonly used of the various names. And so everybody kind of refers to this era and pretty much everything that was published by Martin Goodman as a timely title, even though not all of them say timely on them, right? It's still all considered part of like timely uh, itself. And so he starts putting out more comics. He has a comic called Daring Mystery. Uh, comics. He has a comic called Mystic Comics. He has uh, one issue of a comic called Red Raven Comics that stars a brand new character called Red Raven, who is basically a Hawkman ripoff, <laughs> right? He's a, he's a flying winged guy who like went to an island full of bird people and they gave him a you know set of wings and then he became a superhero. But Red Raven didn't sell very well, so they'd only got one issue. And starting with number two, they changed the name to Human Torch Comics <laughs> and gave Human Torch his second title, right? Like Human Torch is still appearing every month in Marvel Mystery, but he's the first guy to also get his own spinoff comic, right? And so, but he never gets a number one because he starts, Red Raven gets the number one. And then starting in number two, it's called Human Torch Comics. Gotcha. Uh, Human Torch, uh, that first Human Torch comic the first spin-off comic gives human torch a robin like sidekick too right like he now is the human torch and his teen sidekick toro right. uh, who somehow also has the same powers and the two of them fight crime together daring mystery is kind of like the next best known of the series and that's like a nutty series because he never he kept going back to freelancers and asking for characters and he would give them no time to try out, right? Like if they didn't sell immediately, he'd chuck them and move on to the next one. <laughs> so Daring Mystery never had the same people more than like two or three issues in a row because he kept canceling them, the same characters, right? So Daring Mystery, you know, any individual one you pick up will not have the same characters in it as like the next one you pick up, right? Because he was just piling through stuff, uh, looking for the next Submariner, the next Human Torch. And he really never found one except for one more. Right? right. So all of these characters in Daring Mystery and all of these characters in Mystic, most of them you never hear from again, right? They're really these minor characters. The only reason you might know them is because they're part of this, you know, history of Marvel, right? And so Marvel still owns the rights to all those characters. And every so often they bring some of them back, right. you know, the wizard, Miss America, Blue Diamond, all of the guys who are in the Liberty Legion, right? Those are all 
timely characters that appeared once or twice or three times. Okay, the wizard appeared a few times because he was probably the fourth most popular. But most of them only have two or three issues in their lifetimes, right? And have actually appeared more, you know, from the 70s on than they actually did back in the 40s. But, you know, Marvel loves to plow its own past and go back and find these guys again. So Mystic had the, the original Black Widow was was one of the characters that 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 first appeared there it's the first time they used that name she's got nothing to do with the modern day black widow they just like the name right Right. in the the golden age black widow is like a femme fatale assassin killing bad guys and sending them to hell because she works directly for satan (laughs) right completely different character and kind of an awesome one that's a a crossover i want Mm mm-hmm so, you know, now we're, it's 1940. Now we're in the, you know, we're, we're, we're in the comics business full time. He's got four or five titles going out every month. In back in the mainline comic for it, Marvel Mystery, Burgess and Everett have both stopped working for, fin- for Funny Zinc, right? And are now working out of Martin Goodman's office, even though he's still having to pay Funny Zinc their rights, right? And so Joe Simon, who is now like, you know, kind of running things as the editor in chief, for Marvel, for Timely, is under orders from Martin Goodman, basically, to make Funny Zink's life as miserable as possible, (laughs) right? Because he wants Funny Zink to just sell him the characters outright and stop making him pay this license. And so they start, but basically what they do is every time Funny Zink sends them pages and stuff for this, they ask for corrections, even though they don't need them, right? They're perfectly good, (laughs) but send them back anyway and make them rewrite this thing. Right. Just let's just be the most miserable customer, (laughs) you know, until they get sick of us, basically, and like just decide to like let us buy these characters outright. And so we don't have to keep paying them monthly. Uh, And that totally works. It's like less than a year of, you know, timely being the worst customer to Funny Zinc. Funny Zinc just says, fine, here for X number of dollars, you can just own these characters and we never want to talk to you guys again. Which they did, and then you know they stopped working together, and you know Funny Zinc eventually went out of business, you know later in the '40s. But uh, you know Marvel eventually wound up owning Human Torch and Submariner and the Angel and everything outright because they you know pissed off the original owner so badly. <laughs> anyway, so Burgess and Everett come work in the in the Marvel mystery in the, the the timely offices on Marvel mystery and the other stuff that they're doing right now. Burgess is doing two Human Torches a month because Human Torch has got his own title, and they're friends, right? And they literally have their you know workspaces are right next to each other, and you know, they're talking all the time. And they decide they're going to create. They think it would be cool if each of their characters met each other. Mm-hmm. Right, they should do a set of stories where their two heroes, or their hero and their kind of anti-hero, run into each other and have have a fight. And that seems like a really obvious idea to us now, mm-hmm. but it's 1940. A comic book has never done that before. Right, right. Superman hasn't met Batman yet. You know, like none of these characters have ever crossed over. Literally, the very first crossover, the first existence of a shared universe, shows up in Marvel Mystery Comics number eight, where. Submariner is now so honked off at the surface world and all the stuff that he's, you know, all, all the, the troubles that they've had and, uh, you know, polluting the oceans and dropping bombs in the middle of the ocean and whatever else, you know, he's so mad at them that he basically attacks New York City and Human Torch flies up to defend it. And they have a fight that basically lasts over both of their stories for three issues. So it's a six part adventure, hmm. uh, in, which is a head to head battle. And of course, you know, Burgess and Everett, like, there's no way they're going to let either one win. Right. right. Because that would be that would be, you know, admitting the other one was cooler. Right. Because and they're like I said, they're best friends. So they're like literally writing every other chapter, you know, of the story at each other. 
<laughs> you know, um, so of course it has to end in a draw, yeah. right? Like by the, by the end of issue ten, Submariner gets away, you know, vowing to do whatever. You know, later on, the Human Torch is like, "Wow, that's the toughest guy I ever fought." Thank good I can only barely save New York City, you know. And so, you know, this is huge. These, you know, nothing else that Marvel that Timely is doing is selling anywhere near what Marvel Mystery is because it's got these two lead characters. Right. Kirby and Simon have now come on board, you know, and they're they're turning characters out. They have tried. They they're the ones who did Red Raven. That didn't really work. They invent Marvel Boy for the first time, the first version of that. They create uh, the first guy called the Vision. Again, none of these really kind of sell. And so they uh, you know, sit down and they say, okay, we're gonna come up with a character. Uh, he's gonna be a super patriot. He's gonna wear a flag for a costume, and he'll carry a shield. And we are, you know, we're both Jews in New York. We're hearing all this terrible stuff that's going on, you know, in Europe. So basically Hitler is going to be our first bad guy. You know, we're not, America's not at war with Hitler yet or anything for this, but they, they are 100% convinced he's a bad guy. And so we're going to, you know, like have a superhero whose whole shtick is going to be that he punches Nazis. And they're like, okay, here's the deal. We think this is a, you know, this is a, a, a crazy good idea for a character. Um, and so we're only going to give this to Martin Goodman if he cuts this set of deals with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want a we want a royalty. We don't want to start in somebody else's comic. We want Captain America to be number one. You know, with this when we give you this character, Captain America, we want him to have his own comic. We want a royalty percentage of the sales for this. We want all of the stuff. You know, and Martin Goodman looks at the title and is, uh, looks at the, the the first few pages of art of it and says. Yeah, this is going to be a smash. You're absolutely right. And he does this deal. Of course, he immediately starts weaseling his way out of it once he's already signed this contract. Right. And he and Simon will then spend the next like 10 months basically fighting over it. (laughs) But he does agree at first that this is, in fact, a hit. And Captain America number one comes out. It goes on sale at the end of 1940. It's cover dated March of 1941. And it is, again, a smash. And the cover famously has... Captain America punching Hitler right in the face and sending him flying across a, you know, flying across his office, basically, right? And the, the hero is a soldier in his secret identity, and it's exactly like the right time to do this, right? It's the exact right time to have a patriotic military superhero just as America is starting to get wound up about World War II. Right. You know, it's exactly the right timing, and it also sells a zillion copies, and now they have a uh, like a third hit. Right, you know that that's going to take off. Unfortunately, they don't get along with you know Simon and Kirby do not get along with Martin Goodman, and so they basically will leave Marvel and go work at DC, at at National and at, for All American uh, after only ten months. So there's only those first ten issues are the genuine Simon Kirby Captain America. Right after that, there's a bunch of other people who come who who work at. So I do actually have a question about Martin Goodman at this point. Kind of two things sure. that are coming up. He's he's uh, he's not a comics fan, but he seems to have really good, like, he seems to have pretty good uh, ideas about what is going to sell on this. Right. And also, so he would have greenlit this in what, 19, end of 1939 or 1940? Captain America yeah. in particular? Yeah. Would have been the fall of, ni- fall of 1940. Okay, so I guess that was when America was starting to turn around on... Because a, a year prior it would have been a very um, like bold state because America hasn't entered the war yet. Right, exactly. So, By the time they the do it, England is already you know like full on. If it if it had been a year before, they'd have been like, oh yeah, their Germany is fighting Poland. That's kind of an obscure thing that's happening, you know. Mm-hmm. 
But by the time they do, it's 1940 and the Battle of Britain is already happening, right? Okay. So, I mean, it, there's there's no question. America is selling, you know, America has picked a side. Okay. Yeah, we may not want to go to war ourselves. In fact, we're not going to go to war for another full year, but we we know who the good guys and bad guys are at this right. point, right? Like England's, England's a good guy, Germany's a bad guy. We got that much figured out. Okay. So it wasn't like right. particularly politically like... Um... Well, once again, I mean, like as as Jews in New York, they were paying attention, right? Like word had yeah. already gotten out how badly Jews were being treated in Germany. They oh. didn't know, once again, didn't know the details of everything for this. They didn't know about, you know, the, the details of concentration camps, but everybody knew, you know, Hitler was anti-Jew, right? I mean, that yeah. was a, that was, that was a big deal. So as members of a Jewish community in New York City, they were probably better informed about like, you know, what a shit uh, uh, Hitler was than maybe the average American at the time. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've always known that uh, Simon and Kirby were kind of knew what they were doing. Just the uh, Goodman as a personality, it just seems like sort of, you know, weird for him because he's so right. money committed, but it's a, it's a very interesting. Well, yeah. You know, like, and, and as we say, like Goodman, Goodman still doesn't really care right. about the comics. Right. And this is kind of a thing with him is that like the, the quality of what he's putting out varies wildly. Right. Right. On the top end, you've got Captain America and the Human Torch and the Submariner. And on the bottom end, you've got like, you know, cheesy Tarzan ripoffs right. and stupid cowboy comics and like this parade of completely forgettable superheroes. And he's still trying. Right. Right. Like it's not like he's not necessarily that great on like finding the next thing. He can certainly recognize when something's successful. Right. And he will ring every dollar <laughs> that he can out of the things that he owns that are successful. But he also, in order to get the three things that are successful, he has to try 20 things that fail. Gotcha. Right. That's just kind of like how his system works. And, and he does so many things that he actually does get the, you know, he doesn't need that high a percentage of them to be hit. Right. Right. If you put out 10 new characters every month and one of them is cool, you're doing all right, right? Like you just throw the other nine aside and try another 10 next month, right? Absolutely. So there's, um, I, I, I want to throw in a quote here for this. It's, you know, it's still years away from Marvel. There, there's a reviewer named uh, John Hilgert talking about Goodman and the, the system that he had for it. He actually says at one point, it, it was like a man built a widget factory <laughs> and accidentally produced some Stradivarius violins, <laughs> right? Like all he wanted was widgets, right? Like all he wanted to do was just make money selling widgets. It did not matter what the quality of them was. Accidentally, he created these incredibly valuable, you know, pieces of IP or, you know, allowed to come to print these incredibly valuable pieces of IP. How much money is Captain America worth today? Right. As a character, right? You know, with his three successful movies of his own and the, you know, Avengers and everything else that that, that goes with that. He's worth billions, right? right? That was completely by accident <laughs> as from Goodman's perspective. Right. You know. So Interesting. Um, and like famously, as we're talking about like the quality of stuff for this, he ran a pretty haphazard shipshot operation. And 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 the uh, the the best example of that I can tell you is that uh, Human Torch Comics put out issue number five in back to back months. <laughs> They're different comics. The second one should have been six. They just screwed up the numbering. <laughs> right. So there's famously like as a collector you need to know that there's two different human torch number fives out there that came out like literally in back to back months. Cause they just screwed up their numbering in the system. Right. There's no other famous comic book publisher ever did that. <laughs> you know, it's timely because timely didn't care. Timely was just, you know, throwing stuff out the door. Gotcha. So yeah. So in back to back months, they published human torch number five and then human torch number five again. <laughs> right. Nice. So, so, 
in the office at this point, Martin Goodman is mostly like employing. I mean, he's got, you know, Simon uh, and Kirby until they leave. And then he's got Burgess and Everett and one or two other people who are turning stuff out. Al Avison, who takes over Captain America after uh, Kirby and Simon leave, is there for a while. And then he's got this kid. Like, uh, you know, Simon is, uh, you know, still working in the office. And one of Martin's uncles, a guy named Uncle Robbie, who used to like, you know, be in and out of the business there, comes to, comes to Joe Simon and says, I've got this kid. He's Martin's wife's cousin. And he's looking for a job for the summer. He's 16 years old. Do you have something he can do? He, you know, he'll be a gopher. He'll, you know, like carry your art stuff around. He'll bring things to the printer and pick stuff up and ride a bike, you know, like doing all this stuff in the city. Uh, can you give him a job? And Joe Simon says, sure, absolutely. I'll give him a job, whatever. It's, you know, it's Martin Goodman's wife's cousin. That's, you know, the, he's the boss. He's a relative of the boss. That kid, of course, is Stanley Martin Lieber. Who will become much better, you know, much more well known as Stan Lee. But his Stan Lee's first job in 1940 as a 16 year old is as a gopher in the timely offices for eight bucks a week, is what they paid him basically to, you know, to, to do all of this, uh, to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, now it's 1941. Captain America is, you know, like a second hit. They keep putting out new stuff, they give Submariner his own comic. They do all winners comics and they do USA comics and young allies comics. Um, the second human torch number five <laughs> of, of the two of them that they publish has the famous torch Namor fight, right? Like it's the big one between them, which is a full 60 page single story. The first time Marvel ever did that first time timely ever did that was to dedicate one comic to one story. Uh, and it's a torch Namor slugfest that like sells a zillion. Mm -hmm. So in order to get the best postage rates for sending their stuff out, a comic book that was all art was not considered a magazine. That was like a, that was like a separate category and would be charged more money to ship mm -hmm. by the postal service than a magazine. And in order to qualify as a magazine, the comic had to include like at least two pages that were text only right. that did not have any pictures in them. Right. So every superhero comic that came out at the time, every comic book at all, basically, would usually have like a two page story that had no pictures. That was just a text story. And once again, the only reason they had that was to like basically, you know, take advantage of the better postal rates. And so Stan Lee gets his first writing jobs at Timely writing a couple of those two page stories. Right. He writes a couple of like two page Captain America stories and puts them in the back of Captain America. Where he writes a couple of, you know, wizard stories, um, that kind of thing, and uh and and puts them in the back of, of USA comics, right? Um and that's his first time ever getting paid to write. I know a weird fact about one of those stories. Uh okay. is uh Stanley uh the first time that Captain America ever throws his shield uh is yes. in one of those stories. Well that's uh yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. In the text story, you don't right. see the picture of yeah. it. Yeah, the right. first time that it's written that he uses a shield as like a protector. That he chucks his shield at somebody. Stanley yeah. in one of those stories, which I always found kind right. of interesting. So, you know, eventually they wind up giving Lee some scripts, usually on like the second and third tier guys, right? Like he writes Jack Frost and he writes The Destroyer and a couple other, you know, characters for Marvel that are not. And then eventually, once the war is underway, uh, Lee will finally get to like graduate up and will actually write some Captain America scripts and stuff as well. So, you know, now we're into the war, right? Now it's like 1942. Martin and Jean have had kids. 
They've got their son, Charles, who uh, hangs around the, or will be hanging around the office later, who's better known as Chip. And Chip will become important in later uh, episodes of this, but he's, you know, he's just a baby right now. And then they have a daughter and they're making good money, right? The Timely is making money. The magazine distribution is making money. The pulp magazines are making money. Everything's going on. Goodman has fired Simon and Kirby for, you know, talking to DC and uh, getting other people to, to, to write them. And they move their offices from uh, Park Place to literally the Empire State Building. They actually take like an office space in the Empire State Building starting in 1942, and they'll be there for a decade. Uh, Stan Lee gets promoted to being the editor by the time he's 19. So like by 1942, you know, he is now out of school working at Timely full time. And he's so useful and he clearly understands how to tell a good story and that kind of thing that Martin Goodman basically makes him the editor and steps back entirely. Now he is not paying any attention to, you know, like what's actually going out. He's just dealing with the money and the sales and, and all the other stuff. And Stan Lee is running the operation of like putting out the comics every month as a 19 year old. Hmm. And then he gets drafted. Stan gets drafted. And so he gets replaced. Once again, he's only the editor for like less than a year. A guy named Vince Fago becomes the editor in chief. And uh, Vince Fago and Goodman and his and Goodman's lawyer basically managed to convince the uh, war office, you know, that's uh, at a time when comic books, like, you know, the sales of comic books are going down, not because they're not popular, but because we can't get enough of them printed because we have paper shortages. Right. Right. This is the, you know, like the big issue during the war is like, we, you know, everybody's, everybody's cutting back. Everybody's having to make do with, you know, ration this and that paper is being rationed too. But Goodman and uh, his lawyer and Vince Fago basically convinced the war office to give them the same amount of paper that they did during the war, uh, before the war, that they're important to the national war effort, mm. basically, because we, pr we print Captain America by God. And so at a time when everybody else is struggling to get paper, one of Timely's big advantages is that they've got more paper than pretty much anybody else. Of course, Martin Goodman figures out how to make money with this, that he is, you know, like bringing in paper and selling in some of it out the back door to other publishers, <laughs> you know, who didn't have this sweet deal with the, with the war uh, office. Lee goes to work. He's the one actually in the army. Uh, he goes to work at the Signal Corps, which is where he originally gets drafted. And he's like fixing telephone poles. And then they discover that he's a writer. And move him over to the training film division, where he is now writing the scripts for training films. And among the people that he's working with in that office with the training films are uh, Charles Adams, the guy who does The Adams Family. Hmm. Uh, Frank Capra, the movie maker and director, is over in that office. And also Ted Geisel, who will be much more famous as Dr. Seuss. Hmm. All three of those guys and Stan Lee literally were in the same office, uh, you know, like working together, basically making movies or like writing the scripts for, for training movies. And Lee was still writing for Timely, right? Like he's still getting, uh, you know, he's, he's still getting jobs working for him there. And so he would get every Friday at his base, he'd get an envelope from Timely that was like the list of the scripts that they needed from him. He'd write them over the weekend and send them back on Monday. And then somebody else would do the art and lay them out or anything. He would just basically spend two days writing scripts. And so he goes to his office one day and asks the mail clerk for, you know, the, for his mail. Uh, assuming that he's going to have his package from Timely on Friday. It's a Friday afternoon. And the clerk says, oh, no, sorry, we didn't get anything for you. And Lee's like, hmm, that's weird. Okay, well, whatever. And he walks off. He comes back on Saturday, goes by when the mailroom is closed on Saturday, and sees that there is an envelope from Timely Comics in his box, right, in the closed office. And he's like, crap, that's, I'm, I'm going to miss a deadline. Oh, no, they, they did send me something. I just didn't get it in time. This is terrible. So he goes to the officer 
who's in charge and says, can you please open up the mailroom? I, I got to get my, my letter out there. And the guy says, what are you got a side job in the army? What is this? Get out of here. You know, we're not, oh, you the, get it when you, you know, come to the office on Monday. And Lee's like, holy crap, I, you know, I'm going to lose a bunch of money. I'll miss a deadline for the first time ever. This is terrible. So he waits till that officer leaves and comes back with a screwdriver and unscrews the hinges on the door and basically like takes the door off so that he can get to his mail. <laughs> And then puts the puts the door back, you know, and uh, takes a script. And of course, gets caught. I mean, they don't catch him at the time, but they immediately can tell somebody unscrewed our door hinges. What's going on? They figure out who it was, and the mailroom officer basically turns him into the base captain. Uh, and he's realizing at that point, you're getting tampering charges for you know, like tampering with our mail. And you could have been sent to he could have been sent to Leavenworth, right? Like this is this is in fact a military crime that he has committed. But fortunately, the colonel who was in charge of that department gets involved, intervenes in it, basically, and spares Lee from going to prison for doing this, basically. But then, as his punishment, basically gives him everybody else's terrible jobs for the next few months, mm. right? Like, he gets all the worst duty assignments over and over again for months as, like, his punishment for breaking into the mail office. But he did, in fact, get his scripts in on time. Mm. So, so you know, the war continues. Lee is gone. Uh, Vince Fago is putting out these titles. We're having some uh, some some excellent uh, you know product is still being put out. Goodman is making money a bunch of different ways, not least of which selling paper to other publishers. The serials, movies, uh, movie producers uh, who would who would do serials have by this point tapped into comics quite a bit, right? Captain Marvel had his own serial. Superman gets his own serial. Batman got one. Black Hawk, a bunch of different character comic book characters have gotten them. Finally, somebody calls timely and says, "You know what, Captain America." We should Captain America would be would be a great serial character. That's what we want to make him. And Goodman is, of course, delighted. This is exactly what he's wanted, right? Like, here's a chance to make a bunch of money for no effort on his part, right? <laughs> right? It's just all he has to do is sign over permission and let these people make, uh, you know, a movie for him. And so, in 1944, the Captain America serial comes out. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I have not. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> it's the worst. Better or worse than the 90s one, the one with the motorcycle? Oh, much worse. Much worse. Oh, really? Wow. I mean, well, not worse in that, like, I mean, the, the, the 90s one misunderstands the character. Right. You know, to be fair, the serial at least has him being the right guy. You know, he is, in <laughs> fact, like a military hero. You know, he has his shield. The costume looks terrible, but it's clearly supposed to be the right costume. Right. It's, it's being put on a guy that it doesn't fit. So it looks like he weighs like, you know, 120 pounds. The shield looks ridiculous, et cetera. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't misunderstand the character like the nineties one does, but it has even worse acting, even worse script, even worse quote unquote special effects. It's just terrible, which is kind of a shame. They, they never make a sequel for it, but at least once again, you know, Martin Goodman made a bunch of money. So we've come to the end of the war, and with that, I think we've come to the end of part one of uh, of the, the the story of Marvel Comics. Timely is uh, is doing great. The war is going to come to an end pretty soon, and they're going to have to like figure out what they're going to do when everybody comes home. But right now, everything looks great for being timely. So, all right, we'll pick up in nineteen forty four when we come back. But thanks for listening. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker, and I'm Darren Watts. Have a good day. Thanks for coming by.